0: Hi everybody. This is Loretta from Next Sequence, and you're listening to the Next Sequence podcast. More and more tech bio founders out there, like myself, before going from entrepreneur to investor, I've been trying to bring in computing technologies to biotech. In this show, I sit down with some of the most impressive founders of what we call now tech bio to learn more about their journey and inspire other founders or wannabe founders to follow in their tracks. TechBio is all about fixing the problem of the world, and the world needs more and more TechBio founders. So, listen up. Hi, super excited here today. This is a new episode of the TechBio by Next Sequence, and this is an amazing news because we are starting to new. Today, a new series, a series dedicated to regulation and government institutional uh, law. And we are super excited to be receiving today, Jan-Peter Busu. Jan, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, Loretta. How are you?
0: Great. Amazing. So I really, really wanted to record this because we, we talked uh, at length about two weeks ago, and while we were talking about what you're doing uh, in Africa, in synthetic biology, but also around the entire industry in the uh, bioeconomy, I really wanted to get out there what we talked about. So I jumped on the huge opportunity to be able to interview you. Uh, of course, uh, we'll start a little bit about who you are, where you come from, and what's your background. So tell me more.
1: Great. Uh, just like you introduced, my name is Ian Peter Usulwa. I am a Ugandan from Uganda, which is in the eastern part of Africa. My background is in biotechnology. I did biotechnology for my undergraduate degree at makere University in Kampala, Uganda, and went on to do a master's degree in biotechnology still at Kit University in India. Uh, Despite having uh, a background in the science of biotechnology, most of my working experience has been in the fields of policy, science policy, and also communications. So I started out working with the National Agricultural Research Organization here in Uganda, which is the premier research body in agriculture for the country. And I was doing outreach work with them. And what this entailed was reaching out to stakeholders, who included farmers, other scientists, policymakers, regulators, sometimes funders, to let them know about biotechnology and the latest techniques we have in our toolbox of modern biosciences, which we could do genetic engineering and now we have the editing and things like that. So That's I did it- that for quite a while. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why actually push you from science to, to policies? You know, I can already hear in the background all the scientists cr- screaming traitors. So, <laughs> you know, why they <laughs> basically push you into policies?
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, w- when I joined uh, the university, at the time Uganda was trying to put in place a law to regulate genetic engineering. That time it was still the, the, the trendy technology, you know, about lots more cool things like synthetic biology and gene editing. So, at the time, we didn't have a law that clearly regulated this technology. And uh, being a new biotechnology student, and I was learning all these genetic you know, engineering techniques and manipulation techniques, I was quite disturbed that I wasn't part of as a part of the discussion of the conversation around what this flow would happen as a part of the advocacy. So as a young man, I was quite challenged and I, I mobilized my fellow students We formed the society, which at the time was called Makerere University Biotechnology Society. So I used this umbrella body to get the youth and other students of biotech and other biological sciences to contribute their voice to the advocacy around the, the law. And what this brought to light for me was that whereas scientists are very brilliant at their science, they actually find communication and policy quite uncomfortable. It was a bit of a, a, a huge task getting you know, people from their cool projects to come and join things like a walk on the street, I, maybe a meeting with policymakers talking about this technology, maybe taking a petition to parliament to get them to discuss this law. I, my fellow students always found a bit of a challenge getting out of their comfort zone of the science to doing this. And so I felt like this would be my unique contribution to the field. I found this quite exciting for me. So I decided to give this my focus and attention. So I, I still love the science, but uh, I found this much more fulfilling as a contribution to the scientific practice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Why did you feel that uh, they needed to be kind of a framework set in place to be able to put limits uh, around what was being done in Uganda. What was the specific condition that um, make you feel that this was urgent, that this was needed, and it it was something that you wanted to, to dedicate yourself to?
1: Yeah, so there are two reasons. One, from the positive, that when a policy is put in place, then government is able to contribute resources to. The, the work of that policy. In this case, it would be government being able to have resources and funding for training in biotechnology, for the, the the labs researching on these crops, for training opportunities elsewhere. And all these things would, as a student back then, all these things would give me a brighter you know, career as a, a scientist. That's why I felt that would help. Then on the side of the public, when you're developing all the science in the lab, the, targetist for our solutions to reach the end user and so for the public to have trust in the science we are doing they need to feel like we are being held accountable which is what the policies and law do they give government and the public a way of ensuring that we are developing the science for the benefits and not the risks and so these laws are put in place checks and balances they ensure that there is a process you follow for you to get access to things that would potentially be used for for bad and so I thought that that would also make it easier for the public to take on the solution I developed at the end of the day. That's why I felt that framework was important.
0: And what was the condition in Uganda at that time? You know, what was the condition in the lab? Because I, I guess that was that is definitely correlated to your desire to have these resources, you know, put to the task to to be able to serve the the scientific community. What was it like in Uganda at that time?
1: So at the time, uh, Uganda was spearheading or leading efforts in the region to develop genetically modified crops for strategic crops for our country. Uganda had very brilliant scientists in, in the research institute see, working on all these things. But the challenge was that despite the brilliance applied to developing the solutions, the solutions only went as far as the, the publications publish the results and all that but the farmers for whom these solutions are being developed they never go to see the things with their farms so to me i feel like we aren't in science for publications uh, much as you know, they are prideful academicians but i feel like the real joy of a scientist comes from seeing your solution actually solve the problem that society is facing so that's where we were we had we had for example research on bananas for resistance to bacterial wilt happening from as early as 2008. And this was almost a decade later, farmers were getting the varieties that were resistant to these crops. And a number of other crops were coming up, uh, the resistant maize to droughts, cassava that's resistant to the brown streak disease and the mosaic virus. All these were meant to boost productivity, agricultural productivity, but the farmers weren't enjoying the benefits because the framework wasn't in place to take the research from the lab to their fields.
0: So your yeah. desire was basically to be able to bring back to your scientific community, but it was, I think in a way, it's not just a scientific uh, community because being able to build this kind of partnership where the farmers are directly able to reap the benefit of the research, bring more than just scientific benefits, it's also bring economic benefits for the entire country. So I, I think in a way, what I can say is you could see that huge field of opportunity there that was lying there and what needed to be done. Of course, you like the science, but you also understood that there was actually a gap that needed to be addressed. So, when I look at you yeah. in your bio, I realized that you went from the university and jumped into the industry directly by working with Ginkgo Biowork as a public uh, policy fellow. How did that uh switch from academic? Uh, background to then industry background actually change your perspective and what were uh, the most exciting thing that you did at at Ginkgo?
1: Yeah, so at at Ginkgo, one of the things I was engaged in was to, the work I was advocating for previously, the law I was talking about, but at the same time to expand the scope from just genetic engineering. To actually advocating for a policy environment for the entire practice of biotechnology, which is now defined as the bioeconomy. So, I think one of the things I found exciting is the vast applications of of biotechnology. Like this company was working on lots of cool applications, very amazing things. And so, I was introduced literally to the field of synthetic biology. I got to see synthetic biology in practice, in motion. At the same time, I found a new love in terms of policy, and that was biosecurity, yeah. because uh, one of the discussions that we kept having at genco was, as we exploit the these cool applications of the technology, we need to ensure that we are also being responsible about how we do it. That is ensuring that what we are developing isn't used for bad, which is exactly what I was caring about. So we had several discussions about how to, you know. Do surveillance violence, how to contribute to detection of uh, segments or DNA segments or primers that could potentially be used to build a weapon or cause a security threat. So all these things were, were conversations that we were having a lot at Jinko and going forward this informed my, my perspective of what the bioeconomy looks like and what possibilities there exist in the bioeconomy.
0: And so From that perspective, you went on and you you got more and more engaged. You you worked with the Bioscience uh, Information Center, and and then you moved on to to a different angle, working with IGEM on the uh, science uh, communities uh, in Africa. And so all these different choices felt like something that were going forward in this idea of you getting more and more engaged in the uh, policy for the bioeconomy. How did you manage actually to shift from just pure uh, public policy fellow at ginkgo to then getting more and more engaged into the bioinformation part, but also not just the bioinformation, information, but also getting more engaged with the active community, whether it is students, whether it is startups.
1: Yeah, so in terms of science communication, uh, actually I worked, started working actively in science communication right after my first degree, the undergraduate degree. So at the time when I joined Junko Bioworks, I had already been working with the bioinformation center in Uganda and also working with Science Stories Africa, training scientists on how to communicate their research through storytelling. So what literally happened was that um, after the policy fellowship, I continued with my work of training scientists on how to communicate their research or storytelling and also information. So it was more of an extension of the work. But the other thing that I, I did now was to, having been introduced to synthetic biology as a, a field of biotechnology, I now sought out the community here in Africa, which is called Symbio Africa, And I also got to learn of IGM, and that's when I decided to apply to volunteer with IGM to learn more about the technology, but also to train the scientists more in science communication. So that's what's the aim there.
0: And what kind of uh, what kind of action did you take uh, into the training? Because uh, we we have with our non for profit foundation uh, dedicated to bringing uh, computing and synthetic biology together been re- working very actively uh, to have hubs all around the world. One of the major hubs that we have had uh, from since the beginning has been India. And so we've been working very actively with our student community there to be able to, to see how they can get more engaged into uh biosynthetic biology, how can they contribute, and also, how can they get uh, in touch with the latest development in computing that will allow them to leverage that technology into the research that they're doing into symbio, And one of the things that the students were always um, coming back to me were this idea of, you know, uh, we realize that when we're traveling around, we're going to iGEM competition in Europe, or we are meeting other researchers or student researchers just like us. We can see that uh, the way that we're perceiving things are, are actually different. Uh, we don't necessarily feel like we have the same uh, background in terms of uh, knowledge, and so we decided to go on and build our own kind of community-based bioengineering student network where we can help each other. Teach each other about bioengineering and really advocate for bioengineering across uh, our network so did you felt uh did you feel at that time that you you were in the same predicament did you feel that you, you, the community in its entirety needed to be boosted needed to be supported needed more content training to be able to catch up
1: yeah so uh that's a realization that came Kim- in way before I joined iGEM. So I think that is uh, Hasnain. I think Hasnain was leading some of these communication training efforts. Then there was a steering group established through, I think it's Marisa. And then I joined the team later on. But the idea behind the setting up of this team is that um, science is only as important as, as what the user is able to understand. And so it's important for the scientists to get basic skills in communicating their research to the others. Secondly, oftentimes the people who make decisions about our science are scientists, so you won't communicate to them the scientific style of the presentation, the slides, the data, and all the things, and you think they'll appreciate the science. There is a need for you to learn how to communicate your complex ideas into a language that they can easily appreciate. So this could be donors, they could be the policymakers, they could be investors who have the money, but just aren't scientists. And so communication became a key a key skill that was required by the students and also the scientists. So what we were doing there as part of the steering group was developing various trainings. There was a course developed on science communication. And sometimes, we just have science communication experts come in and share tips with uh, the students and IGMers and former IGMers on how to put across their research in a language that's understandable by non-scientists. So that was the effort there. And uh, that's why they're still carrying on. I'm no longer working with them because of uh, other commitments. But the work is still ongoing, and the course is still available for students to enroll, yeah.
0: I and and I see that uh, that effort you carried it in a sense because you carried it by first initiated it uh, as part of IGEM. but. You definitely carried it along by joining then for the whole in Bio Africa. As we know, Simbio Africa is the largest, actually, community of Symbio scientists and researchers uh, in Africa. It's a very interesting community because it's actually the largest, but not only the largest. But I think it's a very active community that is trying to push forward the different elements required for the bioeconomy to take on. So that that uh, work of communication and and trying to support scientists in the way that they were communicating, but also working with a government official, translated as I see it as you getting more engaged with more government official and leading you now to your actual position. Can you tell us more about what you're doing now in your actual position?
1: Yeah, so in terms of actual positions, there are quite a number of hats I wear. So and I may have to ask which, which one I specifically asking about.
0: Yeah, so I would I start definitely with the bioeconomy uh, collation in Africa because you pointed out during our last discussion the major events coming in Africa right now where most of the African countries are going to get together to to talk and discuss about what's coming in terms of bioeconomy, what is the opportunity, what it represents for Africa, and how they are going to actually try to 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 reach out to this uh, huge potential and and set up in place policies and government action to be able to, to really reap the benefit out of it. We saw that Biden I have an executive order last October really uh, set in force trillion of dollars uh, dedicated to the bioeconomy. Uh, so we know that it's something that government now are looking at very actively. So let's start with that part as part of this uh, syndicate because I think it's a very huge opportunity and then we'll talk, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah so uh, until uh, the end, of last month, uh, I was working with Symbio Africa in charge of their policy and communications. And basically what my main role was, was to get the scientists also involved in policy discussions and get better at their communication. Symbio Africa, just like you've described, is a very exciting community of synthetic biologists, but now it has opened beyond synthetic biologists to just anyone who has a curiosity to learn about synthetic biology and the bioeconomy. And so what they are having is that uh, this is going to be the second of the, of the kind uh, the International synthetic Biology and Biosecurity Conference in Africa. The first was held in 2021 in October, it was in Kampala, and at the time it was the f- the first time that such a conversation was happening on a broad scale on the continent. And so partners came together, they networked, students got to learn about what's happening in this field. We had academicians, we had politicians, we had themes including biosecurity, biomaterials, investment, and finance, and, and uh bioenergy, and the policy itself, biosecurity, biosafety. And so. Best Building on that first conference, where they're now organizing a second conference that's happening in July this year, where the intention is now to have this bigger and better and a bit more inclusive of the scientists, the entrepreneurs, the policymakers, the academicians, and other stakeholders in the field of synthetic biology and the bioeconomy. So what uh, any enthusiast in the bioeconomy should look out uh, to, to seeing at this conference is getting to appreciate how far the continent has come in terms of the bioeconomy and synthetic biology, get to interact with a number of founders that are building startups in this field, and also get to interact with the policymakers who are thinking about how best to regulate work and investment in this area. You'll meet academicians as well, people who come up with the ideas that then get translated into products in the industry side. There will be students, there will be investors, and other stakeholders in this space so that's foreseen by africa then in terms of the coalition as i told you that uh through my fellowship at Jinko bioworks my interest was broadened beyond just genetic engineering which is just one application of biotechnology so now looking at the entire ecosystem and what needs to be in place to get africa to the level of advanced bioeconomies like the us that you were just quoting a while a while back so That uh, made me think of a platform that will be able to specifically look at that same technology, but from a lens of money. In other words, being able to justify all these investments through how much is being contributed to the economy in terms of the revenues, in terms of the GDP, in terms of jobs being created, and look at what needs to come in place for all this to work. So some of the things we focus on in the coalition, one is the the academia, because that's where the workforce comes from, that's where they are trained. And then we look, we come to the point of uh, that bit of translation, how do we get the academia to be in sync with industry to respond to industrial needs. And then you also look at the policy environment, Uh, what policies need to be in place to encourage investment here, what policies need to be in place to make the investment viable so that the companies actually survive to a profitable level and lastly also from the investment point of view either investors convinced that africa is a good place to invest in when it comes to the bioeconomy they feel like their investment will be safe we have some bit of investment now but we're also looking at the bigger investment of having biofoundries here having serious and huge manufacturing going on on the continent and uh, i think with the other partners working in this space that uh, you know are thinking alike i think this will be quite possible in. Uh, in a few years to come so that's what the coalition is working on that's what I've, we've been working on we are engaging in conversation with people like loretta and other partners here we have a number of players in this continent that probably gets to talk about as we go on that are all working to ensure that africa is taking advantage of this uh this uh nutrient of looking at at science not just for the science and publications but actually for the economic gains it can bring to the continent yeah.
0: You, you said something uh, that really resonated. You said uh building these biofoundries all across Africa to really reap the benefit of the bioeconomy and I was thinking about the discussion that I had with a lot of the founders and accelerators government officials in Lada and it was typically again the same idea the idea of trying to build at scale these biofoundries what would it look like for you if you were successful what would uh the Bioeconomy empowered Africa look like uh in the future if you were thinking about it?
1: Yeah, uh Africa has about now 1.2 to 1.3 billion people. The African Union is working on making trade easier across borders with the African Continental Trade Agreement. And uh the regional economic blocks are also harmonizing trade within regions. So what this means that whichever country gets to have the bio foundry is going to have a market of 1.2 billion that is easily accessible. That's for a start. And now when we look at the fact that we, we are uniquely blessed with biodiversity, the products we develop here will be of key interest to consumers and developers elsewhere beyond the continent. That could be Europe or America or Asia. And so what I'm looking at in, in, in for the future is that uh, let's say we have um, a biofoundry could be in a country like, I'll give my country Uganda. you have a biofoundry here, and uh, it's maybe manufacturing a drug. We have a number of kid kids diseases here, like maybe malaria. It could be the HIV. It could be any other drug. And uh, because of how uniquely biodiversity is here, that's something that's easily possible. Getting uh, a combination of compounds that could do that. And then I'm looking at Africa being able to that biofoundry and that factory or company making the drug being able to make to break even even before you move beyond the continent in other words the market in africa being able to support that company's sustainability but most importantly us getting into the global market and having other partners find our products worthy of buying and worthy of partnering with us and distributing and harmonizing all these standards and ensuring that this company in uganda has market within the continent and has market across the globe that's what I would look like what that means for me as an African is that it would have my employment opportunities here yeah, definitely there will be jobs created both the technical ones and the casual ones that's what one thing I would look at two is that there are revenues that could spill into the economy and and uh, support development of other things like infrastructure projects of roads and things like that things that we have been long in need of but have almost always depended on donors and loans and grants and things like that but now we get to enjoy from things like taxes collected both from the company and the employer salaries and things like this so there's this whole compound compound effect of benefits that will occur from just one simple one single one single bio foundry. now imagine Having this replicated for other industries, because as we are aware, synthetic biology has applications across a vast range of industries that was just pharmaceuticals. We could have things like cosmetics, perfumes, unique sense, you could have, you now going into the, the, the era of alternative foods, alternative meats, alternative milk, alternative proteins and things like this. I understand the number of companies starting to think about this in South Africa and other parts of the continent, but being able to mass produce this, but at the same time, having our market being able to support these companies, sustain, that would be a a very good achievement for the continent and the economy at large, yeah. (laughs)
0: I'm all psyched, actually. And it's uh, amazing the number of possibilities. You you mentioned uh, other topics in the traditional drugs and therapeutics because I think a lot of people, when they are thinking of biotech, their mind goes straight to drugs and therapeutics, but it's much more than drugs and therapeutics. As you mentioned, we've seen startups now growing into the food and agriculture industry, where it is about helping on fighting pests and helping the crops actually uh, being drought resistant or providing the kind of characteristic and, and bioengineer characteristic that allow for better cultivation but it's not just that it's also about from a pure public facing point of view being able to produce alternative way of having protein that doesn't rely on cattle and we know that cattle is not actually something that is sustainable for every environment so it's it's really offering a, a a huge vast um you know sea of opportunities. It's not just for the agriculture. You were mentioning um everything from uh cons- consumer goods industry also, and we're thinking about cosmetic products. And of course, this is a huge potential because you can tap into this huge biodiversity where basically you could have a very unique compound that could be used in industry in cosmetic products, industry at least. But in the more sustainable way. Because I think that what people are after now, whether it is coming from the industry, we can see, and we have seen it at Hello Tomorrow, for example, during the main deep tech event here in Europe, uh, during uh, the beginning of March, that companies like Lowell, they're moving toward this huge sustainability uh, campaign and innovative program where they can incubate companies. And I think that this program in, in itself Run in a very global way. They have the possibility to tap into that talent pool, that expertise, that biodiverse, I would say, ecosystem. Not only in terms of, I would say, unique unicity, because I, I I'm pretty sure that each one of the countries that I'm I'm meeting right now in Africa, whether it is Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, South Africa, each one actually. Is very different each one has a very its own unique startup ecosystem and it's it's paired with a very unique also university and educational system because behind all that and you said it it's job opportunities for africa but that's also mean that we need to have the proper i would say training and infrastructure behind to be able to train that talent because the talent needs is going to be a huge and and a very uh difficult to tackle if we don't train our students to be able to be bio so I, I really see the potential here for africa and i'm uh, the only thing that i want to ask is what needs to be done what needs to be done in terms of policies at the uh, national level but also at the coalition level because as you said this needs to be also centralized in a way where all African countries are able to pull up together to create that 1 billion plus market because we've seen it in Europe, not being able to have that one unified market will not help our startup ecosystem. And so what needs to be done on the national level, at the coalition level, but then also at the international level because you, you mentioned it, this notion of biosecurity security is very important. And so we've seen it with COVID, we need policies in place to, secure all of us and make sure that whatever research is being done is not potentially a threat so
1: yeah uh, i think what needs to be done is i would say has been done before but at at smaller scales so i think what i would urge uh, the various stakeholders to do is to expand the scale and what i mean by this is harmonizing trade policies this has mainly been done at regional block level for example we have We Sadak so is for the Southern Africa. We have COMESA combining East and South Africa. We have the East African community here. We have ECOWAS for East Africa. And then we have the North Africa having their own arrangement in the MENA region. So what happens during the regional blocks is that they try to make movement easy for traders. So that move, for Uganda moving goods to Kenya, you don't have to worry about lots of paperwork and all the things here. Be more like moving from district to district. and also. Harmonizing trade in the sense that uh, the taxes on goods uh, aren't as exorbitant as to as to you know to hinder trade and things like that. So what needs to be done in this case is to expand that spirit to the continental level, which is what like the African Union is trying to work on, with the with the vision of you know I think they've called it the African Continental Trade Area, Free Continental Trade Area, something that is meant to turn the continent into a huge economic block with harmonized policies and easy movement of goods within countries. So that's something that needs not only to be just said out, but actually implemented so that uh, any investor anywhere in any country of the 55 is is confident that if I wanted to open up an office or a market at the opposite end of the continent, I would do that without a lot of blocks. So that's one thing that needs to be done. At national level, definitely countries need to, governments need to communicate their political will in terms of putting in place the policies that demonstrate that will. As I mentioned, why I was advocating for the genetic engineering regulations is that with that political position put out in writing and signed by government, then the government is able to commit resources to making the environment more conducive for such work. So, for the case of the bioeconomy, we would look at the bioeconomy policies. For example south africa has one and they also have a strategy that uh, they're implementing and that then that makes it possible for government to appoint uh officers whose role is to ensure that this ecosystem is actually growing that's how useful a policy is so uganda has a draft policy since 2014 we are now i don't know it's almost a decade and it's yet to be passed the region of East Africa has a policy that covers about seven countries that they're now trying to localize international policies. So, if all countries could do this, or a huge number of them, one that makes it easier for them to commit resources to this internally, that gives an investor from without the country to gives the investor confidence that actually, you know, th- this is how. How the political will would be in this country. This is how I could take advantage of it. And this is how long I could even get possible to estimate how long it will take for you to break even. This is how much I need to push this startup at this point to be able to run off with all these incentives clearly spelled out in terms of either policies or guidelines documents that anyone anywhere in the world can access. That it's not just. I am trying to convince Loretta that you can come and invest to Uganda and all these things, but actually Loretta can verify what I'm saying by looking at the policy documents that are public public knowledge. So that's one thing we need to work on. And then in terms of safety, as we develop the bioeconomic policies, we also need to have biosecurity policies. These are meant to ensure that as, as the brilliant scientists are doing their work, some aren't misusing their brilliance for bad. And I understand they have a number of international treaties, but these are only as effective as national implementation. We have the BWC, Biological the Points Convention. We have standards by the WHO, by WOA, by FAO, and all these things, meant to ensure safe trade in food and all these kinds of goods, setting standards by the WTO. So all these things can be said and drafted and published several times, but they're only as effective as how uh, how willing the countries are to implement them at the local level. And so these policies come in handy at that stage to ensure that you know the country has an oversight institution to approve these imports. For example, getting an economist to approve import of, of DNA, let's say primers and other nucleotides required to build these things. We don't have the expertise, but then government can only put in place a position paid by government is if they have a policy creating an institution that has a mandate of oversight over trading such commodities, which is something that governments need to recognize and also put in place to make it easier for the ecosystem to move move forward. So those are the kinds of policies I see we need. They aren't rocket science. A number of countries are already thinking about this because of COVID and previous, you know, experiences. They just need to get past the finishing line to get these policies passed and get their budgets, to, their governments approve budgets for these things to institutionalize the policies and make it easy for the stakeholders to come in and invest in these fields. Yeah,
0: it's very funny because I was realizing when you were explaining this that. I have already seen it and I'm seeing it actually uh, in reverse in computing in the sense that because I'm a uh, French national based in Paris and uh, part of the European Union, I've seen from the beginning, all the policies that have been developed over time to regulate AI because AI is a big subject when it comes to ethical implementation of the technology. And so I've seen over the years how these policies have evolved. And I was thinking when you were explaining what needs to be done, that it was just the mirror of what has been done so far, at least uh, in uh, EU for AI. And I was reflecting also on the fact that I, I do see that, I do see indeed that there are these national policies set in place, and I've seen it in AI, seeing each one of the countries over the last past 10 years drafting their own AI national policies. And I was thinking this, need, what needs to be done now for, for the bioeconomy, and this needs to happen nationally. But then again, uh, what I haven't really seen um, for AI, and, and one would be exactly the same, would be some kind of... Uh, overseeing, over sharing uh, of all these national policies, and then agreement, international agreement about what that meant. And uh, of course, I can understand why that hasn't really happened entirely yet, because behind you need to define the rule of engagement. Because this is what I get from what you're saying. Basically, when you're we're talking about the policies, we're just talking about what is the rule of engagement in between us internally, nationally, but also what is the rule of engagement in between each other as nations, and are we trade, because at the end of the day, it's all about also the economy that is sustaining this technology, and so the trading part. And so I guess it's very difficult to define because, of course, we are very changing geopolitical landscape right now. But even beside that, I would say that this notion of trying to define uh, which one of us get which part and what, why, and how, it's uh, the reason why this doesn't emerge very naturally and very easily. So it's um thank you it's really amazing to to be able to benefit from from your perspective on that i'm looking forward to having that same interview i would say with and as a policymaker like you uh, in Europe and another policymaker in uh, US and, and in China, APAC in general, and I would definitely like at the end uh, potentially have a panel in between um, the different one of you, uh, not forgetting LATAM for sure, because again, there is a huge potential of uh, agriculture for food and agriculture in Brazil, uh, huge diversity. And I know that this notion of uh, bioengineering policies, bioeconomy uh, policies in Brazil and in the entire Latin continent is actually also very prevalent. So very looking forward to to, to that future uh, panel talk. I thank you again for giving your perspective, and I really appreciate it. If you were to, to uh, give a shout, uh, what would be uh, your wish for the future right now in kind of one line?
1: My my wish for the future is uh, an African bioeconomy that is a leader on the global scale.
0: Yay. <laughs> yay, yay, yay to that. Thank you so much. So speak soon. Uh, I will be very happy to forward to you, uh, anyone that would like to catch up uh, based on this podcast recording. And we are really excited. Yeah looking forward to what you're going to be ne- doing next uh, in the uh, bio co- Coalition. Thank you so much, yeah,
1: Jan. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Next Sequen Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the letters from us, You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.